This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we revisit my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean, the tireless activist fighting the death penalty. Her book, Dead Man Walking, tells the story of a ministry to incarcerated people awaiting execution. In 1996, it was made into a motion picture starring Susan Sarandon. The film and book shifted public opinion. That conversation became even more urgent during the pandemic. Prison lockdowns prevented family and friends from visiting, and that included volunteers supporting education programs. But at a maximum security prison near Chicago, one seminary professor resisted. Michelle Clifton Soderstrom. A decade ago, she began offering a master's program inside the prison, and in the wake of lockdowns, she was determined to find a way in. Reporter Monique Parsons brings us the story. You want a success story? Let me introduce you to Michelle Clifton Soderstrom. She grew up poor, completed college and graduate school, She's got a great job at a Christian university in Chicago and a cabin in the Michigan woods. As many evangelical Christians would, she thanks Jesus for her good fortune. But when Michelle searches the Bible, she doesn't go straight to the Jesus parts for inspiration. She finds it in the stories of failure, and which are all over Scripture, right? And when you see the stories of failure, whether it's as grand as David, King David's failure— Beyond famously slaying Goliath, David messed up a lot, committed adultery, ordered assassinations, ignored God. Michelle looks past his example to the failure in the garden or the failures of society in wherever you see those to to be able to read those stories and know that the whole story is one of healing, restoration, reconciliation, redemption, all of that. And when you put those two things together, you have the safety to then fail yourself, I think, and know you're going to be picked up. Michelle's in her early 50s. She's got unfussy, long brown hair, dresses a bit like she's ready for a hike, looks you in the eye when she talks. When she walks across the campus at North Park University, where she teaches theology and ethics, a lot of people say hi. With biblical stories of failure on her mind, Michelle did something a few years ago that no one at her seminary or in her state had done. She took those stories straight to men in a place that symbolizes their failure and society's, Stateville Correctional Center. Michelle started Illinois' first master's degree program inside a maximum security prison. Definitely when we first went in, A lot of them were like, what is this white woman doing in here? What does she want? She wants the men inside Stateville to get an education. She wants some of those men to get out. She wants to abolish, or at least profoundly reform, an American prison system she sees as deeply unjust. Public want higher sentences because they're scared of violence and crime, but yet It's not based in real statistics and probabilities. That's part of our work, is changing that. Michelle believes that a lot of that change involves showing up and listening. 
Before she started going to prison, Michelle taught a course on mass incarceration at North Park Seminary. One of her students there, a young black man, really challenged her. He urged her to do more than talk. Basically, he said, Michelle, you you teach all this great stuff. How are you really living this? In 2010, he inspired her to ask the school for a semester off, a sabbatical. And she made a plan. I started thinking about, okay, who doesn't have access to theological education? I believe in it. I thought prisons, prisons lock up disproportionately people of color, people who have been through trauma, people who come from low-income, economically distressed neighborhoods, uh, victims of domestic abuse and violence. These are the people we lock up. She made the first of many drives west from her house in Chicago, across the Des Plaines River, to a notorious maximum security lockup in the middle of 2,000 acres of cornfields and meadow, down a wide driveway lined with trees. At the end of that road, Stateville looks stuck in time. Tall iron gates, a red brick guardhouse, almost a century old, the words Illinois State Penitentiary carved in stone above the door. Beyond the gatehouse runs a 30-foot wall stained with decades of mud and rust. Beyond that, 2,000 men. Michelle walked through metal detectors and checkpoints and gate after gate after gate. She wound up in a classroom with men serving life sentences. In a course called Women in the Bible, she saw them grapple with scripture and with themselves. In the stories about Sarah, Rachel, Mary, they saw their own sisters and mothers, girlfriends and wives. I was so moved by some of their stories and the ways they were owning how they had dehumanized women in their life and how they had seen that modeled in their homes and yet they weren't able to break those cycles. Discussing the Bible behind bars felt powerful to Michelle and to her students. Benny. Inmate at State Correctional Center. Benny Rios says she's one of the best teachers he'd ever had. You know, there's there's a sense of love, there's a sense of of brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, it doesn't just end with, well, once you're done with the program, that says, you know, bye bye, have a nice life, and we hope you do well. No, it's it's a connection. When we took the second class. They started giving us credits, and then from there, we just, you know, we asked for more. We wanted a degree. Benny's from a Latino neighborhood in Chicago. He grew up around gangs, joined one himself. In his early 20s, a jury convicted him of shooting a man to death. I'm 43 years old. I've been locked up for 19 years now. Benny's got a wife who loves him, two stepdaughters. He's taken just about every class he can take behind bars, writing, urban studies, theology, and law. He saw that Michelle took his ambition seriously, saw he wants to be more than a missionary or a model prisoner. He wants to go home. Michelle's classes focused on restorative justice, peacemaking, and prison reform, skills the men could use inside and outside for those able to get there. So far at Stateville, it's reached more than 200 men. When we spoke, Benny was one of 80 on track to earn master's degrees from North Park University. Any type of ministerial work you want to do or even all the way down to helping you manage your finances. So it's not just 
a spiritual thing, but it's holistic. They're looking out for every aspect of our lives. The relationship between the prison and the university continues to grow. North Park covers tuition. In non-pandemic times, graduate students from the seminary drive to the prison and join the classes. Undergrads help the Stateville students publish a newsletter. And a teacher helped the men write a play based on their life stories. A Chicago theater plans to stage it when the pandemic eases. Michelle grew up outside Minneapolis. Her divorced mom taught life skills and coached basketball in a juvenile detention center. We didn't have a beautiful house or a lot of other things, but people liked to be at our house. And I think a lot of that was because my mom loved kids and young people and she was just welcoming. Even when she wasn't there, you could feel it. Michelle read widely and kept her mind open. She studied liberation theology, a field that blends Christian scripture, spiritual practice, and social justice. Works by people like James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez. Their books inform what she teaches her students inside Stateville. America's prisons and jails incarcerate about 2 million people, and a disproportionate share look like most of Michelle's students, Black and Latino men. Black men get locked up in state and federal prisons at five times the rate of white men. COVID-19 hit them hard. By spring 2021, one of every three prisoners in Illinois had tested positive for the virus, three times the rate on the outside. Stateville locked down in mid-March 2020 to try to stop the spread. Volunteer and family visits stopped. In-person education stopped. COVID-19 nearly destroyed Michelle's program. And before figuring out fast how to save it, Michelle had goodbyes to say. At least 88 people in Illinois prisons have died. Two of them were Michelle's students. She led their funerals over Zoom. Good afternoon, everyone. She got prison officials permission to use that platform, invited the men's relatives, North Park professors, classmates from the seminary. Joseph Tremaine. Wilson. Joseph spent half his life locked up on a murder conviction. He was 44 years old when he died. One by one, his teachers and friends sang, prayed, read his poetry, called him by his nickname, Big Fella. His widow didn't have an internet connection, so one of Michelle's colleagues got her on FaceTime and held a cell phone up to the computer so she could watch. She heard them describe her husband as a gentle soul, a man of faith, a good friend. Many people on the outside saw only his murder conviction. Michelle's other student who died was doing time for sexually assaulting and killing a child. We did receive some contact from the victim's family. You know, how could you take this student and, you know, celebrate? It's really hard. And so to say to the persons who reached out to us, we see you, we hear your voice, we claim him as our own, and we also know that this is one of the deepest forms of brokenness that anyone could weather. To deal with Stateville's COVID restrictions, Michelle and her team at the seminary scrambled with prison staff to keep its courses going. Together, the institutions managed to transform an intensely personal master's degree program based on face-to-face instruction and deep conversations into a kind of old-fashioned correspondence course. 
there's a sort of small army on the ground. It begins with her students inside Stateville. They do all their studying and writing in their cells. The guards don't allow real pens or pencils. They fear those writing tools can become weapons. So the men write with tiny rubbery pencils and pass their finished essays through the bars. Every Tuesday morning, the Stateville education director collects the homework and carries a cardboard banker's box filled with paper out front to the parking lot where a North Park staff member waits. Hi. I'm good. How are you? Hopefully I didn't keep you waiting that long. Michelle's assistant director puts the box in her trunk and drives an hour back to the seminary. There, she scans the homework and emails it to professors and fellow students for feedback. Later, she prints and collates everything in packets for each student to take back to the prison. They use a lot of paper. Yesterday, I was like 3,000 pages. Michelle says the Stateville students work hard and get creative. When the lockdown happened and they weren't able to get easy access to writing advisors, we had a student in the same who were in the same cell block house. They were on different galleys or floors, and one was a writing advisor, and the student who needed help literally tied his paper to a string and then to a water bottle and threw it out the galley down to the guy and said, I want the guy in cell number whatever, 640, to to get this and read it and give me feedback and then I'll pull it back up. Everybody calls Oscar Parham smiley. It fits. He smiles a lot. When we're on the phone and I call him Oscar, he corrects me. He enrolled in Michelle's program early on. She got him writing poetry. She would get us involved by having us get up in front of the class. I've always been scared to like speak in front of people. She gave she gave me a voice. She gave everybody a voice in the class. This training helped when he went before the prison review board to ask the governor for clemency. I was locked up for 30 years for a case I didn't do. It involved a double murder. Two men shot during a drug deal. Prosecutors knew Oscar didn't pull the trigger. He wasn't even at the scene of the crime. He got sent to prison under a guilt-by-association law meant to round up gang members. When he refused a plea deal, his sentence got even longer. Michelle showed up for him. She was there at my clemency hearing. That was the thing that shocked my family. They thought that they were the only ones that were going to be there. Michelle led a charge where she brought a whole bunch of people from the school, which made a big difference because it showed that I not only had support for my family, I had support from people outside of my family. Out of a thousand clemency petitions in the state each year, usually only two or three prisoners go free. In 2019, Oscar was one of them. The day he got the news, a group from North Park came to congratulate him in person, and they brought along Lauren Daigle, a Christian rock star who's one of his favorite singers. When Oscar got out, Michelle helped him find a job, got him a dorm room at North Park, helped him sign up for classes. Oscar's married now. He owns a house and mentors young men and boys. He's pursuing a master's degree in pastoral ministry. He knows his story gives hope to his classmates on the inside. Hope is all some of them have. The laws aren't really on their side. Illinois has one of the most punitive sentencing systems in the nation. In 1998, the state determined that anyone convicted of murder had to serve their full sentence. 
no time off for good behavior, no consideration for their studies or for skills they've learned, no parole. This surprises a lot of people, even some politicians. Illinois is a blue state. Democrats have run politics there for decades. There's no death penalty in Illinois, thanks in part to George Ryan, one of several governors in recent years who did prison time after he held office. He argued the capital punishment system was haunted by the demon of error. Still, the law doesn't allow for these guys to get second chances. Michelle wants politicians to see the real effect of that. We work with legislators and state legislators. We've contacted the governor's office. In fact, the lieutenant governor um, has met with a number of our students to, to get their feedback on sentencing laws. One of those was her student, Benny. I got locked up for first-degree murder uh, uh, and sentenced to 45 years in, in, in prison uh, under the Truth and Sentencing Act, which means I have to serve 100% of my time. If things don't change, Benny will be in prison until the year 2047. He's one of Michelle's best students. The Evangelical Covenant Church invests in Michelle's program with money, support staff, faculty, and students' time. It's gotten so much buy-in from the church because that's what this church is supposed to be doing. She says it manifests the New Testament Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. These are the people we lock up. It's the poor, the sick, um, the, the stranger, right? But in 2021, Michelle says, too many white evangelicals of all denominations cling to false notions of identity and miss Jesus's message. Michelle's seminary, North Park, is the flagship school of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Swedish immigrants founded this tiny Protestant denomination more than 100 years ago. And while there's still plenty of Swedes, like Michelle, people of color make up nearly a third of the denomination. It's one of the most diverse mainstream Protestant churches. We know, as we've seen in the last few years, the way especially white evangelicalism has associated with power, misused power, has been part of the insurrections that took place in early January. The Christian nationalism, which is, which is very deeply embedded in our evangelical world, that kind of racism and white supremacy is not new. As a kid and later as a student at a small Christian college in Minnesota, Michelle knew a lot of white evangelicals, people who looked like her, worshipped beside her in church. She knew some who looked down on people who weren't like them. Within her small, relatively diverse denomination, racism persists. It was there when I was growing up. I saw it didn't recognize it for what it was. But I think the reason I was so late to that was because I did feel the kind of racial superiority that is very much a part of white evangelicalism. The word evangelical is pretty loaded these days. Lots of whites in that category supported former President Trump. So many assume all evangelicals are politically right-wing. But the term is more about an attitude toward Jesus. Evangelicals see his death and resurrection as a story with transformative power, one they feel called to share. That student who inspired Michelle to visit Stateville, he's an ordained evangelical covenant minister now. His name is Dominique Gilliard. He trains other clergy in racial reconciliation, 
and he taught a course with Michelle at Stateville. She never presents herself as a finished product. For me personally, it's even more powerful than her ability to talk about the work she's had to do, but her willingness to continue to say, like, there's still work before me. As much as I've already done, as much as I've already learned that this is a lifelong journey that I'm constantly going to have to be unlearning stuff to be the best version of myself. Jamal Bakker is 37 years old. He's been locked up since he was 18, serving a 60-year sentence for murder. When we speak on the phone, I want to get a taste of what it's like to sit in class with him, something nobody's been able to do for more than a year. We talk about his favorite books on a reading list filled with intellectuals and activists. Gustavo Gutierrez, anything that he writes, uh, uh, Theology of Liberation, any James Cone, The Crossing the Lynching Tree, Black Theology, uh, my favorite author is James Baldwin. So anything that he writes, The Fire Next Time, my favorite book. Jamal tells me about seeing a man get shot when he was a kid. Talks about the times he got shot when he was a teen walks me through his recent essay on theology and suicide. A scholarly journal plans to publish it. In the photos of Jamal on the North Park Seminary website, he has a chiseled face and an intense gaze. He looks that way in his mugshot, too. On the streets, Jamal was known as Lil Capone, a nickname he took on when he realized his birthday is the anniversary of Al Capone's death. Inside, he's a different kind of leader. He's on a new council to give prisoners a voice about prison conditions. He also mentors other men. He has a wife, a family, and as our 20-minute call nears its end, he tells me that Michelle's program is in high demand inside. In my experience, most churches come to prison and they, they give you the same spiel, they're here to save you, but there's nothing beyond that. He's seen Michelle, her colleagues, and the seminary students go beyond that. They've shown him that being Christian is about more than saving souls. And if we were successful and we were like saving every person in prison, right? In Illinois, being 40,000 Christians in prison, right? Then what? You know what I mean? And for me, for Michelle and I have talked about this at length. It's like, yeah, that would be the equivalent of being on a sinking ship. And instead of passing out life vests, we're passing out Bibles. Jamal turned 18 two days before the murder that sent him to prison. If the court had tried him as a juvenile, he would have been eligible for parole. He's appealing his sentence. If Michelle can testify, she'll say that Jamal is a powerful teacher and role model in prison, that he's taught her about empathy and perseverance, that he's earned a second chance. I've never been a part of a community so saving, so so invested. We're, we, all I can say, like, we save each other. And that's what a community is supposed to do, right? Jamal hopes to get out of Stateville one day. If he does, Michelle and her community at North Park will be waiting. Until then, they'll meet him where he is. This story was reported by Monique Parsons, the managing editor of Interfaith America, an online journal that focuses on interfaith engagement and religious pluralism. It is part of the Sacred Steps series produced by the KALW's The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Cheryl Duvall is the Sacred Steps editor, Tarek Fauda is the engineer, and Judy Silbert is the executive editor. When we come back, we revisit my 2019 conversation with Sister Helen Prejean, 
reflecting on her journey and calling to end the death penalty. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <music> 